Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We praise You, Lord, for Your love, for Your grace, for Your infinite mercy. You're such a great and an awesome God. We thank You, Lord, for the example that we see in the Word today about being obedient to You and also, Lord, just about what an all-powerful and awesome God You truly are. Lord, that we can trust You no matter what's going on around us in the storms of life or when we're under the attack of the world. We thank You that You're a faithful God who's in control and that we can trust You. We ask right now that You'd be our teacher, that our hearts would be prepared to hear. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Real quick as a, re- a way of reminder... Last week, in the, in the first part of Luke chapter 8, we looked at the parable of the sower. And we were looking at keys to a fruitful life in our walk with God. And in the parable of the sower, we saw real clearly that the Word of God is the seed that is scattered out amongst all people. And is scattered to everyone. And there are four kinds of ground that were described last week. There was the hard ground, where, or the wayside, where the ground, it, it was so hard that the seed could not take root at all. And these are the kind of people that when they respond to the Word of God, they just don't want to hear it. I mentioned I had friends in high school. I have friends I work with now. Most of you know I still have a full-time job. And, and you know, as I call, you talk to some people about the Lord, and man, they just don't want to hear it. And that's the seed that falls on the hard ground. You have the seed that falls on the rocky or the stony ground. And that's the ground that, that has real shallow soil. And it's people that sometimes when you tell them about God, they have a, an initial response like, oh yeah, that sounds wonderful. You know, I've been trying this, that didn't work. I tried this, that didn't work. Maybe I'll try God for a while. And you see that there's a, an initial response. But you know what? It's very short-lived. And when the first trial comes, they fade away. The third type of ground was thorny ground. And this is the kind of ground where seeds are planted. They even begin to grow. But they get choked off among the thorns and the weeds. And this is a picture of those who accept the Word of God and receive it with joy and initially begin to grow, but they're choked off with the cares of the world. There's something else that still takes precedence in their life. There's something else that is more important to them than God. And I'll be honest with you guys, and th- those of you who have been here more than one week know I'm a pretty direct guy, but here's the reality. As Christians, it's not a part-time, halfway kind of thing. Amen? You can't be kind of a Christian. Either you know God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, you've given your life to Him and you've been born again, or you don't know Him at all. You can't kind of know God or kind of be a Christian. And so that's where the fourth kind of ground came in last week, and that's the good soil. And it says there that soil is planted, the seed is planted in good ground, and it bears much fruit. And as Christians, the way that we know that we've truly been born again, and that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, is that we see a change in our actions, and we bear fruit in our lifestyle. Christianity is not an undercover thing. It's not something that... that, makes us just like the rest of the world, but we truly are different. So last week we looked at beginning of keys to a fruitful life by one, receiving God's Word. Then the second thing we looked at last week was sharing God's Word in verses 16 through 18. You know, we are to let our our light shine before men. We are called to be salt and light. You know, God didn't save us so we could be pew potatoes. Amen? He didn't save us and put us in our workplace so we could be just like everybody else. He saved us that we might be His ambassadors to a lost and dying world. So we're going to pick up this week, and we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at obedience to the Word of God, and then we're going to look at the power of our God. And I love to look at the power of our God. I love it. And you know why I love it? Because everything else that man serves is a joke. Amen? Everything else that man follows after will fail them but our God never will. And I love to look at His power. We're going to look at that over the next two weeks. But let's begin in verse 19. And we're going to look at the last of the keys to a fruitful life. One was receiving God's Word. One was sharing God's Word. And now we're going to look at walking in obedience to God's Word. Verse 19. 
Then his mothers and his brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. So we know that from uh, the other gospel accounts that Jesus was, was in a home and he was ministering to people. And his, parent, his mom came with his brothers. By the way, Mary did have other children. It's very clear from this text. So his mother came with his brothers and they show up. And they want to talk to the Lord. Now there's been supposition by some that they thought that Jesus had become a fanatic and they wanted to get a hold of him and tell him he needed to mellow out. I don't have any definite proof of that, but we see them coming and they want to talk to the Lord. And here's the Lord's response. Look what he says in verse 20. And it was told by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Evidence of a seed that has been planted in good soil is not only boldness, but obedience. The Bible says that if we are His children, we will obey Him. You know, a lot of people say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know, the reality is, and I think of many people that are my friends, and it breaks my heart, because I think about the fact that they think that they're going to heaven because they walked an aisle or they prayed a prayer or they were born in the United States or whatever it might be, whatever reason they think they're, they're baptized as a baby, and they think that they're a Christian because of some religious ritual. Oh, that's it. That's what I look back to. That's what I point to. That's what assures me that I'm going to heaven. But the reality is that some of these people I talk to, you know, they can be, they can be drunkards. They can be living with their girlfriend. They can have the foulest mouth on the planet. They never read their Bible. They're never in church. They don't know anything about God. They never talk about God. But yet they consider themselves Christians because when I was eight years old, I walked down an aisle. Well, let me tell you something. The reality is that if we are seed planted in good soil, we will bear much fruit. We will be salt and light to a lost and dying world, and we will walk in obedience to God. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean that we're never going to sin. But here's the difference. When you're a born-again Christian, you no longer run to sin, but you flee from it. When you sin, it, it grips you. The Holy Spirit, right? Those are some of the, my old youth group kids are here, and this is how I used to equate the Holy Spirit in my life. The Holy Spirit does this to me when I sin. It's just like that. I call it the Holy Spirit head slap. Have you ever felt that before? You know what I'm talking about? When you sin, the Holy Spirit goes... You know, oh, yeah, because he loves me. Just like when my kids are running out in the street, I'll jerk them by the arm, whatever i got to do to keep them from getting hit by a bus. The Lord loves me enough that when I'm walking in sin, that he will get my attention. And so the keys to a fruitful life is, one, receiving the Word of God. Then after receiving the Word of God, being obedient to the Word of God, and then sharing the Word of God. And these are all keys to a fruitful life. And you know what? If, if you're not sharing the Word, you know, I want to encourage you. Jesus Christ said, His last words to the apostles was, Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Amen? If you're not walking in obedience to the Lord, it's because there's a battle that goes on. It's that struggle. I want to be in charge of my life. I want to be on the throne of my life. And in in a way, we're looking at God saying, I know better than you. When we walk in obedience to God, it's because we trust Him. And we know that He knows what's best for us. And that He's a loving and a gracious and a merciful Heavenly Father. Amen? And so those are the keys. So, with that being said, I want to move on now, and I want to look at the omnipotence of our God. Now, that word omnipotence, it means, quite simply, all-powerful. And truly, our God is all-powerful. And it's interesting to me that, that our faith is only as strong as the object we place our faith in. The object or the person that we place our faith in. Everybody on this planet has faith in something. That's just reality. You know, the, the evolutionist has faith in, the, in that theory, right? The person who's, whose joy comes from their money has faith in their bank account. 
You know, other people have faith in other gods. You know, they go and put apples in some little statue and they got faith in Buddha or whatever, right? Buddha's dead, by the way, if you didn't know that, but he's dead. But here's the thing. Whatever you put, your, your faith can only be as strong as what you place your faith in. And so it's very important that we understand exactly who our God is and who we're putting our faith in. And you know what? I love looking at the attributes of our God. And He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. And as we're going to see over the next two weeks, He's omnipotent, which means He is all-powerful. He is powerful over everything. And that's the God that we serve. He, we will see in the next few weeks His power over creation, His power over the demonic, His power over sickness, and His power over death. And this morning, as we witness His greatness and His awesome power, it will teach us that He is in control of all things, that He holds all things in His hands, and it should bring peace and joy to us in our circumstances. Knowing that the same Jesus that we're going to see calm the storm this morning, the same Jesus that we're going to see deliver this man who's demon-possessed is the very same Jesus that walks with each one of us every single day. The very same Jesus that's in your trials with you that you're going through right now or the ones that you're going to go through next week. The Lord is always with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. His Holy Spirit dwells within us. It's a great, it's a great encouragement. It's an awesome thing. So let's begin in verse 22. And I want to look and see at, at His power over creation. You know, every other God and every other thing that man worships was created. Our God is Creator. Amen? We see, especially in Santa Cruz County, many people worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. Worshiping trees and you know, all kinds of other stuff, right? Moons and all, you know, noise, right? Worshiping everything else but the Creator. We're going to look, though, that He is the Creator and He has power over creation. And what's awesome to me is that up till this point in Luke 8, Jesus has been teaching them from the Word. You've probably heard this before. It's our, it's our verse of the church. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But now He's going to take what He is teaching them and He's going to give them a practical application. And the same thing happens in each one of our lives in this room. We're, we hear the Word of God, we read the Word of God, we study the Word of God, but then we leave this place and we must go live the Word of God. Amen? And the trials are going to come and things are going to happen in life, and it's the Word of God that we stand on that helps us in the midst of those difficulties. The faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. It's easy to say you love God, but how do you react when the difficulties come? So let's take a look at the, the test or the trial that the Lord puts His disciples to to strengthen them. Verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day that He got into a boat with His disciples and said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake, and they launched out. So let us cross over to the other side. At that point, the crowds were pressing in on the Lord. We know from Mark's account. The crowds were pressing in on Him. And the crowds were so huge that the Lord felt it, it was desire to, to get away and to go away. Now, as He left, He was leaving the crowd, but also God was taking Him to a divine appointment. Jesus is God, but He also was submitted to the will of the Father. So He gets in the boat, and He's going across the lake, and He tells His apostles, get in the boat, we're going to go across the lake. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We're going across the lake. We're going to the other side. Verse 23. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. That word jeopardy there can also mean danger. So the Lord gets on the boat. They get on this boat, and the Lord goes to sleep. There's a very short trip. It's about five miles across this lake. And as they're going across this lake or small sea, and they're headed to the other side, the Lord is sleeping. Well, in the midst of this, a windstorm comes up. And the word here in the language I looked it up is like a hurricane. 
This is a huge and a massive storm. Now, what did most of the men do that Jesus called to be his apostles before they were apostles? What were most of their, most of their trade? What did they do? They're fishermen. So have they ever seen storms before? Absolutely. Okay? Been in all kinds of storms. But as we see their reaction to this storm, we know this is a heavy one. Because fishermen don't panic when little waves pop up. Fishermen panic when things get out of control. I'll never forget one time, my first, last, and only deep-sea fishing trip. We were supposed to go with a bunch of guys from Southern California, a bunch of guys from church, and a bunch of guys had flown in from Texas. And we get there, and they told us our trip had been canceled because of small craft advisories and there was just way too much water and, all the, and most of the guys I, with were, I was with were cops and they just wanted to prove, oh man, what are you talking about? We're, we want to go. We came here from Texas. And the captain goes, you guys want to go? Okay, I'll take you. Let's go. And they were like, oh man. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into. So we get on this boat and we go out and for 36 hours, it was the most hellacious day and a half of my life. And, you know, you know I never, up to that point, someone said, what was the worst day of your life? I didn't really have, now, and then I had one. Oh, there it is. That's it. And, you know, what was brutal was I'd never gotten seasick in my life. But, you know, if you've ever been around someone else who's getting seasick, you know what I mean? And, we're, and, we, and this is a 36-hour trip. We go in and we're laying on the bottom bunk. And I don't want to get too graphic, but guys were hurling all around me. Let's just put it. And I go out to the deck and go, oh, and you, you look at someone, oh. And once you start, you're done. 36 hours. I'd have paid a thousand bucks to get on the boat. I mean, I was, oh, it was killing me. Helicopter, something. Anybody got a cell phone? They got to get out of here. And, you know, and then I got home. My bed was spinning for four days. Now, I, I, I get an idea that this is the kind of stuff these guys were going. These are fishermen. Now, the fishermen on the boat I was on, these were everybody's lunch because no one else could eat, right? The fishermen, the captain are up there. And I just, you know, yeah, this is good. You tell your wife that lasagna is great, man. That was good. And they're chowing, and everybody else is hurling. And I'm thinking, how bad must the storm be if guys like that are worried? That's the kind of storm this was. These guys are fishermen. They go out, and look at the next verse. They're in panic mode. Again, I want to say this before I note that, though. When they were in this boat and the storm arose, they were in obedience to the Lord. The Lord had said, get in the boat. And we're going to the other side. A lot of people think that the only time difficulty comes in life is when we're, at, when we're out of God's will. I want to tell you, and it may not be a great encouragement to you initially as you think about it, but the reality is that when we're in the center of God's will, you need to be ready because trials are still coming. Amen? Why? Because trials will draw us closer to God, will conform us more to His image, and make us trust even more than Him. So it's not only when you're being Jonah and you're going in the opposite direction. Jesus knew the storm was coming. It was part of His, his day's curriculum. But wonderful lesson they would have heard. The Lord put, puts us into storms for the very same reason. Look at verse 24. How did they react? And they came to Him and awoke Him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now remember, these are fishermen. This has got to be a massive storm. They're up there bailing out water. Lord! And they went down. Where's the Lord? Where's Jesus? Oh, he's sleeping. So they ran down and they woke him up and said, Master, Master. Now, these are so severe. And while the boat was filling with water, the apostles were panicking. Jesus was sleeping. Jesus was not bothered by the storm. Why? Because he knew it was going to occur. Because he knew, because he's in control. Amen? And you know what? God is not concerned about the storms we're going through either. Because he's in control. Amen? He's faithful. This was not a sleep of weariness. This was a sleep of restful peace, of knowing that He was in control. Amen? Trusting Him. Now, they panic. 
And the word master, master, we are perishing, the way it's written, it implies a rebuke. Like, Lord, don't you care? We're going to die, don't you care? Have you forgotten about us? And you know what? I know that there have been times in my life where I panicked like that. How about you? Amen? Lord, don't you care? Did you forget about me? I lost my job. I've been looking. Lord, Lord look at my, the sickness in my... Lord, did you forget about me? Lord, I've been witnessing this guy for 10... You want, Lord, soften his... Lord, don't you care? And this is what happens here. They're coming in with that attitude. Lord, did you forget? We're bailing... At least you can do, Lord, is grab a bucket and get up here and help the water. Don't you care? Why aren't you helping us? Sometimes we think God's silence on a matter implies his lack of concern, but the Lord's sleep was not again a sleep of weariness, but a rest of faith. And you know what? Let me tell you three reasons why they should not have panicked. Here's three reasons why they should not have panicked, and three reasons why we should never panic. One, Jesus had promised that they would go to the other side. He did not promise that the trip would be easy, but he did promise that they would get there. Amen? And so they got in the boat. They had already promised we're going to the other side. They didn't have to panic. Second of all, Jesus was in the boat with them. You know what? His presence in the boat did not keep the storm from occurring. I I think that's interesting. Again, walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that there aren't going to be trials and difficulties in life. But the good news is, you're not going through it alone. Amen? They'd already seen His power. They'd seen His miracles. They should have known that He could have done anything. They'd seen Him heal the leper. They'd seen Him heal the lame. They'd seen Him raise people from the... They'd seen Him do all these awesome, powerful works. They should have trusted Him. But instead, they panicked. And you know why they panicked? Let me tell you why they panicked. They panicked because they were looking at the circumstances instead of looking at the Master. Amen? The reason we panic is we're looking at the circumstances instead of looking at the Master. If they had gone down and looked at Jesus and said, He's sleeping. He doesn't seem too caught, right? I mean, that's what I did. I mean, that's what we should have done, right? Instead, they're looking at the storm. Look at the storm. Lord, don't you care? And we do the same thing in our life. We get so focused on the circumstances that we forget to look to the Master and to seek His face and to know His will. Finally, they could see Jesus was at perfect peace, even in the midst of the storm. Again, it says in Psalm 8:8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's only when we take our eyes off of Jesus and place them on the storms of life that we become fearful and anxious. God is not panicked when we go through difficult circumstances, and neither should we be. We should not panic. Remember, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, and peace. You know what? The world is looking for peace, and we have it. It only comes through Jesus Christ. Peace does not come when you have a certain amount of dollars in the bank account and all your debts paid off. Peace doesn't come when, when everybody's healthy. Peace doesn't come when you, know, you have the perfect relationship or your, your new child's born. I mean, again, those are all happy and joyous things, but the reality is none of those things will bring you ultimate peace. They can bring you temporary happiness. But why is the world, why is it that you know, Rockefeller said when they asked him, how much money did you need to, have, to be happy? Was it $10 million? Was it $50 million? Was it $100 million? What? And he said, the answer is always a little bit more. How much money do you need to be happy? A little bit more. No matter how much you have, you've got to have more. Why? Because you can't find peace in the world. You can only find peace in the Lord. If they've been looking to God, they would have peace in the middle of the storm. Now look what happens. What does Jesus do with the storm? Then He arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased and there was a calm. So they're all panicking. What does the Lord do? He gets up and says, be still. All the waves go down. Now, 
That's pretty awesome. I'd like to have been there. How about you? Amen? But the Lord just got it and went, be still. All the winds, oh, wait a minute. Now, why was he sleeping? Because he knew he could do that anytime he needed to, right? He's God. He's in control. But these guys were panicking. Lord, what are you going to do? Come get a bucket. Help. Right? Lord, you forgot. You guys are killing me. Gets up. All right. Be still. Be killed. All the ways go down. That's our God. Now, you've got to remember that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation. He is the Creator. He created all things. Nothing was made that was made without, apart from Him. And the same voice and word that spoke the stars into the sky is the same voice here that speaks and says, Peace be still, and the storm goes away. And it's the same Lord, the same in the person of the Holy Spirit that walks with us in the midst of our trials, who never leaves us nor forsakes us, who when we're sick is there, when we're, when we're struggling is there, when our finances are a mess is there, when we're struggling with people at work, is there. No matter what happens in life, He's always with us. He never leaves us. And you know what? I want you to see that sometimes He calms the storm. You've probably heard this song. And other times He calms His child. Amen? Sometimes He calms the storm, and other times He just calms us and says, you know what? The storm's going to rage, but I'm with you. And I believe that more often we learn in the midst of the storm than anywhere else. Look at verse 25. And He said to them, Where is your faith? How did he know their faith was gone? Because their fear of their circumstances, of the worldly and physical difficulties, are mutual exclusives in the Bible. You cannot have faith and fear. You cannot have faith and anxiety. Those don't work together. As Christians, the Bible says, be anxious for nothing. Nothing means nothing, right? So be anxious for nothing. And so often, we, you know, we, we want to help God out. Lord, do you, need, do you need my help? I'll do it. Come on, come on. I mean, we, we just want to, make, we want to knock walls down in the name of Jesus Christ. The Lord wants us to be still and know that He's God, to trust Him, to be anxious for nothing. And so we see here that He says, where is your faith? Why are you afraid? The disciples' lack of faith in the midst of a storm was, was revealed by their fear and lack of peace. Again, I said this before, when you squeeze a lemon... Get lemon juice or lemonade, right? And when you squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. Amen? You know, people are watching us when we go through difficulties. And when we get squeezed, that's especially when they're watching us. All the people we work with, oh, something happened in your life, then they're watching, okay. Oh, you're a Christian when you're on the cruise ship and everything's perfect. Let's see how you react now. And when you get squeezed, we ought to just pour out the love of God. Now look what it says here. What are they, how is the response? Who can this be? They were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? This reveals that they did not fully understand exactly who Jesus is. The greatest danger was not the wind or the waves, it was the unbelief in the heart of the disciples. As Christians, I want to encourage you guys with something. The greatest problems are in us, not around us. Amen? The greatest problem is not our circumstances, it's our unbelief in the midst of our circumstances. Amen? If we truly trust that God is in control, we can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we can be getting ready to be thrown in the fiery furnace and say, bring it on. Why? Because we know God's in control. God will deliver us, and if not, it's okay, because He's faithful. You know, if the world, what's the worst the world can do to me? Shoot me, and then I'm in the presence of Almighty God. He can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? I mean, so the reality is that no matter what happens, God is in control. God is faithful. We can trust Him. We have nothing to fear. It's our unbelief, not our circumstances, that cause us to fear. The circumstances around us, when we look at them through the eyes and understanding that God is with us, should give us peace. They heard Him teach the Word. They'd seen Him perform miracles, but they still had no faith. Why? It was proven out in their actions. 
It's not how much we hear. We need to hear the Word because it changes us. But the reaction to difficulty proves where our heart is. All that teaching Jesus had done, He's now got Him in class. He's now taken Him out of the classroom and He's saying, look, let me apply this to your life and let's see what happens. We're, we go through the same things, you guys. And you know what's awesome? Is God will take us through the same test over and over and over again, I believe, until we pass it. Amen? He's saying, I want, I want you to learn. I want you to understand. I want you to know that I'm faithful. I want you to know that I'm in control. I want you to know that I love you. The Bible says in Hebrews 3.12 that we must beware, beware of an evil heart of unbelief. It's through this incredible trial that they were brought to an even deeper peace and awe of who Jesus was. Look what it says at the end of the verse. Who can this be? For He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey Him. Man, we saw Him heal people, but now He's talking to waves. I mean, we saw Him heal people, we saw Him touch people's lives, but now He just looks up and He talks to the waves and they all stop. And remember again, this was a a huge storm because the fishermen thought they were going to drown. And the Lord spoke one word and it went away. And you know what? The Lord can do the same thing with whatever trial you're going through. He can speak one word and it will go away. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. There needs to be a fear and an awe and a reverence for God, not a fear of the physical circumstances that we struggle with in life. So we've seen His power over creation. Lastly, this morning, we're going to look at His power over the demonic. Now most of you know, first of all, I think Satan often gets too much credit, but the Bible also says that we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. Most of you know, Santa Cruz, there's a place that's Satan-friendly, this is it. I'd heard months back that the satanic headquarters moved to Santa Cruz. And you know what? It, and I remember when Halloween was around, it says, Santa Cruz is the most beloved holiday, Halloween. You know? I mean, this is a, a Satan-friendly town, but you know the reality? It's a Satan-friendly world. You know that God created the world, and He gave it to man. And it was perfect. And man chose to sin, and when he sinned, he forfeited the world and gave it to Satan. The Bible says that he's a prince of the power of the air. That this, is, this world belongs to him. That's what it says. That's why we're aliens here, you guys. Amen? This is not our home. We're heaven bound, right? We're going to heaven. And this is not where we're staying. And praise the Lord for that. And we shouldn't be holding on so tightly to this place. But we're going to see that the Lord has power over the demonic. Look at, and, and I love the fact that Satan is a defeated foe. Though he, he's allowed to, to run free among the earth, his time's going to be up soon. And he knows it's coming, and that's why he wants to go down swinging. Look at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. So the other country, the country that got the other side of the lake, the very place that the Lord said they were going to go, they went. The Lord told them when they got in the boat, we're going, and guess what? They ended up there. And the Lord makes promises to us, and guess what? They're going to happen. The Lord promises never to leave you nor forsake you. He promises that you're going to heaven. He promises you're preparing a place for you there. And guess what? He is a God of His promises and you can trust Him. Amen? And you know what? The reason they didn't have faith is they forgot that He was in control. And may we never lose that, that sight. Again, there, the place Gadarenes is probably a modern day uh, city or village called Cursa. And today there's a very, still a very steep slope there with numerous caves in its hillside. Verse 27. When he stepped out of the, on the land, there met him a certain man from a city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. So when he steps out on the land, here's the divine appointment. And it's amazing to me that quite often when we're in the midst of the most difficult time of life, the right on the other side of it, God's got an, a divine appointment waiting for us. 
You ever notice that? You're going through a difficulty, and the Lord's using it for His ultimate glory. God's bringing you to exactly the place that He wants you to be. You think God's forgotten? You think God's not in control? You think that He needs to get up and start bailing out some water? You think that He needs to be helping you? And all along, the Lord's saying, I'm taking you exactly where I want you to be. Amen? We need to trust Him. Lord, you're in control. Lord, you're faithful. I'll be honest with you. Santa Cruz, though God put on my heart about 12 years ago that I was going to start a Calvary Chapel at some point in my life, if you had asked me any city, I would have said Santa Cruz is probably the last place that I would ever be. Not that I have anything against Santa Cruz, but I just this is the last place I thought I would have ended up. But God knew, and God knows, and praise the Lord for that, that it's not my will, but His will. Amen? Praise the Lord, it's not my plans, but it's His plans. And you know what? It's so great to watch God work. And so we see that the storm rises up and they're brought to shore. And who does he run into but a man who is demon-possessed? The Bible says that Satan seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. That is his whole focus, plan, and desire. Satan wants to destroy. I heard a lady call in to to uh, to every man I answer on CSN. CSN's a radio station here in town. We have a translator, 98.3 and 91.1. It's Calvary Chapel teaching all day long. But this lady called in and said, what if we prayed for Satan's repentance? Now, uh, you know, and, and Pastor Chuck was gracious as he always is. Well, you know, I understand your heart and that's wonderful, but here's the reality. Satan's not repenting. How do we know that? Because the Bible says that he's not repenting. The Bible says he's going to be cast in the lake of fire. The Bible says... He's done. And so, we don't pray for things that are contrary to the Word of God. Amen? We should pray for, we can pray for Osama bin Laden's repentance. He may, probably not going to repent, but we can pray for a minute. But Satan, forget it. He's not repenting. Game over. And not going to happen. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He's going to spend eternity in the lake of fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the torment is going to be more hotter for him than anybody else, and he knows he's going, and he wants to take as many people with him as he possibly can. That's who Satan is. And so look what Satan does to the life of a person. Look what it says here. It says here that he wore no clothes. Nor did he live in a house, but in tombs. What does Satan do to people? We're told how the demons, we're not told how the demons entered this man, but we know he took control of him. And it's almost always a result of yielding to sin. I want to make this real clear, because this is something that's taught sometimes. A demon cannot possess a Christian. Amen? Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives within us. Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. Can't. Physical impossibility. God's not sharing His house with anybody. Amen? And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Can't do it. Alright? But demons are, can easily get a foothold on the lives of those who cultivate sinful practices. Those who basically invite them in. But because this man somehow had yielded to Satan, he lost everything. He lost his home. He lost his fellowship of his family and friends. He lost his decency as he ran around naked. He lost his self-control. He lived like a wild animal. According to Mark's account, he was screaming and cutting himself and frightening the citizens so much that they were trying to restrain him. He lost his peace. He lost his purpose for living and would have remained there had he not met Jesus. Notice also where he lived. He lived in the tombs. He lived among dead people. And you know what? When Satan gets a, gets a hold of you, you're dead. Anybody who doesn't know God is dead in their trespasses and sins, and there's no question why this guy's out in the tombs. He's out with the dead people. That's where he's living. And that's what Satan does to, the, to a life. 
James 2.19 Look at verse 28 first. Let's read this. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. The Bible says in James 2.19 that the demons believe and tremble. Do you know that the demons know, absolutely positively know who Jesus is? You know why they know? They used to be in heaven with him. Jesus created the demons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus being God, created them as angels. And they rebelled against God when Lucifer, in his pride, wanted to be God. He was cast out of heaven, and a third of the angels went with him. So every one of those demons knows exactly who Jesus is. And when Jesus came walking up, the demons that were inside this tormented man responded by saying, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Isn't it awesome that even the demons confess who He really is? The Bible says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Adolf Hitler is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Muhammad is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Buddha, Hare Krishna, all of them. They're all going to confess. Why? Because only He is Lord. And the demons even confess it. Son of the Most High God. Pretty clear. The demons understood even better than the apostles understood. Amen? Apostles were saying, bail the water, we're all going to die. The demon, oh, son of the most high God, why are you here? Had a better understanding of who God was. I beg you, do not torment me, he says in the verse. Why? They know that their judgment is coming, and one day they will be cast into hell, where they will be tormented forever. And they're saying, don't torment us yet. Please, don't torment us yet. We know it's coming. We know where we're headed. Now, we see in verse 29 how society attempts to deal with people who, who are under bondage of, of Satan. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it often seized him and, it kept him under, and he was kept under guard, bowed with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. So how, does, how did the society attempt to, to heal this man or to bind this man? They isolated him. They put him out with all the dead people. They put, a, put him under guard. They bound him, but guess what? They couldn't hold him. The demonized man could not be contained by anything the world, world could do. And you know what this is an example of? All the scientists in the world, with all the scientific achievements, all the things that society thinks that we have now, there's nothing that society or the world that can do to deal or cope with the problems caused by sin. Nothing. Or Satan. Nothing. Psychologists don't have the answer. If you're a psychologist here this morning, Jesus loves you guys. But the reality is, there's only one mighty counselor, and it's God's Word. Amen? You know, we can, have, we can get all the... You know, and you know what? Behavioral scientists, whatever. You know, Oprah Winfrey, what do they do on those shows, okay? They spend an hour talking about your problem, and then they get done, and they got no answers. You ever notice that? I don't watch those shows very often, but it doesn't matter which one it is. And, oh, you got this problem. Oh, yeah, that's brutal. Oh, your kids are a mess. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're... you're your daughter talks about slap. Oh, your kids are beating on you. Oh, this is oh, this is horrible. Oh, psychologist comes out and goes, Oh, yeah, you got a problem here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they get all done. They go home. I'm like, wait a minute. That was weak. That was an hour of nothing. Why? Because they, they oh, yeah, there's a problem. We have answer. We don't know what the answer is. The only answer is Jesus. Amen? You want your kids to be obedient. Have them fall in love with the Lord. You want people who are struggling with drug addiction? Have them fall in love with Jesus Christ. You can get them off crack, but if they don't come to know Christ, they're still headed for destruction. Amen? It's Jesus is the answer. What's the answer to every question? It's Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. 
They don't have the answer. Only the Lord is the answer. And so, oh man, we'll, we'll, uh, let's take him outside of town. Let's put shackles on him. Let's bind him up. Let's, oh man, we've we got to keep him. Didn't work. Why? Because that's not the answer. They did everything they could, and he's still running amok. He's still a mess. While Satan tried to destroy the man, look what the Lord says to him at the beginning of that verse. He commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Jesus came to deliver him. Satan was trying to destroy him. Jesus came to deliver him. You know what that's a picture of, you guys? What is happening to every one of us. Satan seeks to destroy all of mankind, and Jesus came to deliver all of mankind. Satan wants us to spend eternity separated from God, weeping and gnashing of teeth with Him, and the Lord came to deliver us that we might have life, life more abundant, and the promise of heaven to come. Amen? And so here we see in this demonic man, Jesus came to deliver him, came in love, in compassion, and you know what? What's awesome to me is he went through a storm to get there. Don't you love our God? He went through a storm to get to this man that he might deliver him while Satan was attempting to destroy him. Once again, Jesus brought deliverance by the power of his word. Look at verse 30. Jesus asked him and said, what is your name? And he said, legion, because many demons had entered him. Now it's interesting to note that legion, in a Roman legion, was 6,000 soldiers. Can you imagine the constant torment this man must have been under as thousands of demons lived inside of him and were tormenting him both day and night? And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Again, we see that the demons believe and tremble. They knew that Jesus had power over them. And they said, please do not cast us into hell. Don't cast us into hell. Verse 32. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that they would be permitted to enter them. And he permitted them. So the swine are unclean animals. And these unclean spirits begged Almighty God, if instead of being cast into hell, that they would be cast into these swine, into these pigs, these unclean animals. And note, again, that they had to ask for permission from the Lord. Do you know that the devil can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do? Do you know that? Job. Remember that? My servant Job. Satan said, oh man, if, yeah, everything's perfect. That's why he's serving you. If he had a few trials in his life, he wouldn't serve you anymore. And the Lord said, you know what? You can, you can stir him. Can't kill him. And only because the Lord allowed the trials of Job did he go through the trials he went through. And we only go through trials as the Lord allows it and he uses it that he might be glorified, that we might know him better. Amen? And so that's what's happening here. So Satan cannot do anything unless the Lord allows it. And so he allows them to enter. Now imagine, watch this, look at verse 33. This is a pretty horrendous event. Then the demons went out of the man, entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. So imagine this. And again, this is the first case of deviled ham, right? But we see four quick... Oh, that's weak. Youth pastor thing. Now, four quick actions we see here. Jesus gives permission. The demons come out of the man. They went into the swine. And the 2,000 pigs ran violently down the slope into the sea and drowned. Imagine what that scene was like as 2,000 squealing pigs were, were stomping down this slope, falling off a cliff, going down to the water, and they're all drowning. Imagine the, uh, the scene. So why did the Lord allow this? What was the point of this? I believe that Jesus allowed the demons to enter the swine to show everybody who was there the purpose of what Satan desires to do, and that's to destroy whatever he touches. He destroyed the swine just like he wanted to destroy the man. The only reason he didn't destroy the man is God didn't allow him to. But he cast him into the swine, and immediately, again, their intention was no different from the man. 
But God rescued him. Satan is still bringing destruction today. He enters, our, he enters people through the occult, through psychics, Ouija boards, drugs, drug addiction, sexual depravity. I'll tell you what, as a youth pastor, even through the music, some of, our, the, some of the music our kids listen to, you know what? God created music to worship and honor Him. Amen? And I don't want anything else in my house that isn't doing that. And that's Pastor Dave's opinion, okay? But I forget it. And you know what? You know what scares me? Is I'll see, I, just yesterday, I saw a 13-year-old kid with Satan on a t-shirt. You're like, what is up with... I even asked, bro, come here. Why is Satan on your t-shirt? What are you thinking? Oh, it's kind of a cool shirt. I said, do you know he wants to steal, kill, and destroy you? Do you know his whole focus and thought and heart is to make sure that you, are, that you die and that you're tormented on the way there and that you spend eternity separated from God? That's what Satan wants to do. And you're wearing his t- a t-shirt with his picture on it. Help me out. That's not something we mess with. Amen? You know what? If I... I, I cracks me up, but people ask me, I said, man, I wouldn't play for the Arizona State Sun Devils, man. I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't have Sun Devil on my shirt. Forget it. I don't want the devil to have anything to do with my life. Amen? I don't want him to have... Forget it. He's a defeated foe. He needs to be denied by Christians. We need to walk with God. We need not to let any of that garbage into our house that will cause our, our eyes to get off of him and on the world. Satan wants to destroy. Columbine. What do you think that was about? You know, you listen to the music, the music that those, those two boys listened to. It was all about killing and destroying. It was so demonic in nature. I've watched the video. It's just unbelievable. And it became part of these kids. And what did they do? They went out and acted out what they'd been listening to for years in their music. Destroy, kill, maim. It's not something we should play with. We should, we should flee from those kinds of things. Look at verse 35. We're almost done. Then they went out to sea. Verse 34, when they saw those saw what happened, they fled and told it in the country and the city. So the people, when they saw what had happened, they went out and they told everybody. The swine herders didn't want to get blamed for the loss of the pigs, so they ran and told the owners and anyone else who would listen the tales of the miraculous things that the Lord had done. Now, this would draw a crowd, but look at the response that they give to Jesus. So they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. So when they came to Jesus, what did they see? This man that they had been shackling. This man that they had been tying up. This man that they had sent out and put him by the tombs to live with the dead people, was sitting at the feet of the Lord. He was clothed, something they hadn't seen, and he was in his right mind. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This man who shrieks and screams could be heard day and night. This man who was running around naked. This man who had lost everything and become a source of great fear. This man they had tried to subdue for so long but without success. Jesus just spoke a word and his life was transformed. Amen? You know what? Taking him to, to every kind of worldly answer to subdue people, shackle people, and change people is not the answer. The answer is Jesus. He speaks the Word and lives are changed. Jesus did more with His Word than they could do with every resource that they had. So how did they respond? They see Him sitting there. Where Satan had sought to destroy, Jesus had restored. But look what happens. Verse 36. They also had seen it told by them by what means he had been demon-possessed, was healed. So they went out and they told everybody. The story was told in great detail. Owners of the pigs were probably taken up to the hill to see where they had run off. 
And the sad part is in Matthew 5's account, it says their greatest concern was not that the man had been healed, but they had lost their pigs. Told them all about the swine, it says. Man, who do you think you are killing my pigs? I mean, that was their reaction to Jesus. Instead of bringing out the sick people to be healed, instead of coming to Him and saying, Wow, Lord, we need to find out who this is. All they were worried about was the fact that it cost them some swine. And we're not going to have any bacon now. I mean, that's what their problem was. They were more concerned about that than what God was trying to reveal to them. The reaction shows the impact of this event. was more concerned about the pigs than about them. Verse 37, so how do they react to the Lord? Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked Him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and He got into the boat and returned. The action they took was to ask Jesus to leave. Again, they didn't come to Him. They didn't go home and bring their sick to Him. They didn't inquire to know more. They wanted Jesus to leave them alone so they could remain in their current sinful state of depravity. They didn't want Him to, to damage their local economy. They said, we've got to get Him out of here because... He's, cramp, he's, he's cramping our style. And you know what? The world's the same way today with Jesus. We can't be posting Ten Commandments in school. It might cramp somebody's style. We've got to make sure we don't do anything that might, you know, oh man, we want to live our life. We want to be simple. We want to. We, want, we don't want to have conviction. We've got to get Jesus out of here. It's no different. They want to do the same thing. And you'll note that Jesus never stays where He's not wanted. It's so true. Verse 38. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged Him that he might stay with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your own house and tell the great things that God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. The saddest part of this whole story is that they were more motivated by the pigs and what they had lost. And at the same time, the one who had been touched by Jesus, all he wanted to do was grab hold of him. The rest of the crowd was worried about losing stuff. And all this man who had been touched by God wanted to do was hang on to Jesus. Here's a clear depiction between someone who's been touched by God, spoken to by God, and those whose focus is still on the world. You know, it's interesting to me, and I want to make this clear, that the Lord cared more about one man than He did 2,000 animals. And the Bible says a righteous man cares for his animal, and we should. But you know what? Jesus didn't come to die for animals. He came to die for mankind. Amen? And when people start talking about animals in the same level of people, something's wrong. It's worshiping the creation again rather than the Creator. And so we see here that the Lord tells this man, and what does He do? What does He do? And let's end with this. I love what He does. He wanted to go with the Lord, and the Lord said, I want you to go home, and I want you to tell people what I've done for you. He said, you have a testimony. Go tell people. Once you were blind, but now you see. Once you were possessed by the world and now you're possessed by me once you were headed to destruction but now you're a new creation in me and I want you to go tell everybody and the reality is that that's where ministry should begin it should begin at home amen the first place ministry should happen is run home can you imagine when he showed up at home what that must have been like he was running around scraping himself going crazy and he goes walking in the house all clothed hey mom I mean can you imagine the change, the transformation, what, ha- what happened to you? Jesus happened to me. And you know what? Did he have a theological seminary background in the Old Testament? No. What did he have? He'd been touched by Jesus. And sometimes we think, well, I can't share my faith because you know, I haven't memorized the Bible yet. You know, when I memorize the Bible, you know what you have? You have a testimony just like this man has a testimony. Amen? You can say, here's who I was, I met Jesus, and here's who I am now. Amen? 
And that's what our God wants to do in us. And that's what He did in Him. So in conclusion, as the worship team comes back up, here's what we looked at this morning. We saw our Lord's true brethren are those who hear the Word of God and walk in obedience to it. They bear fruit. Not those who simply refer to themselves as Christians. Our God is truly omnipotent. He's all-powerful. With His Word, He had power over creation. He calmed the storm. And that He allows trials to come into our lives that we might more clearly see who He is. He has power over the demonic. While Satan seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, our Lord came that we might have life and life more abundantly. And next week, read ahead. Because next week we're going to see His power over sickness and His power over death. And death in this case is a representation of sin. Our God has triumphed over both sin and death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the example in Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that You are mighty and powerful and You are in control. And that, Lord, we can trust in You no matter what's going on around us. Lord, I just pray that You would fill each one of us to overflowing with Your Spirit. That we might walk with You. And we might not allow the, the storms of life to get our eyes off of You. But in the midst of the storm, that our eyes would be upon You, Lord. And that we'd be like the man who was once demon-possessed. That, Lord, that since You've touched us, that we would not be ashamed of You. And we would run and tell everybody about Your love and Your grace and Your healing touch. We thank You. We praise You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close in a worship song.